Do you ever feel like a plate spinner? I thought about trying to insert a little video clip in here, but it's, it gets a pretty rambunctious. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. These are poles or whatever they have figured out here, and the, the guy that's good at it, whether he be at a circus or wherever he is, he starts one plate, and it's not spinning smoothly. It's kind of this wobble, almost falling type of emotion, and he gets that one going, and then he goes over here, and he gets another one going, and this one's going, and before long, he's got a bunch of them going, and he has to pay attention to this one, and pay attention to that one, and over here, and then sometimes, depending on who you're watching, they get one just going on the table, just like this, and another one over here, another one over here, a little wobble, and they're running back and forth, and they're adding some other things in there to, to see, oh, this one's about to fall, whoa, 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 does that ever feel like your life? I mean, Christmas is always almost come, you know, it's coming. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to get those pictures out. Whoa, 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 whoa. We got to do finance over here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, this person has to be at an appointment over here. Oh, the doctor's appointment here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And it just gets crazy, doesn't it? How do you decipher, decipher which plates you're going to keep up? Or do you do like many of us try to do? We try and keep all the plates spinning. Are you ever guilty of that? And somebody comes to you and says, hey, I have a great idea. I need you to, bet to spin this other plate. And you say, okay, no problem. I can do that. No, I, I can do one more. Do you ever feel like a plate spinner? You know, of anybody on the planet that had more responsibility, if you will, more people pressing in, more people asking and desiring his time and his attention, I can't think of another besides Jesus. He had so much on his shoulders, yet somehow he had a peace, he had a calmness, he had an assurance. I don't think to speak with Jesus would be, would feel, you wouldn't feel rushed or hurried. I don't think he'd be glancing at his watch over and over. You know, I'd love to hear the rest of this story, but I I have some other place to be. I have people to heal. I have demons to cast out. I have a a big tour and I have a limited amount of time, three years, that's it, or three and a half. But somehow he was able to do that. I want to look at a story this morning that talks about a lot of various things, but I want to pull out something, maybe you've seen it before, I don't know, but turn with me, if you will, in John chapter 4, a well-known story where a Samaritan woman meets her Messiah, if you will. And for whatever reason, this story is contrasted with John chapter 3, 3 and 4. In chapter 3, you have a man. Here we have a woman. Chapter 3, it's by night. Here it's in the day. Chapter 3, it's a Jew. Now it's a Gentile. Chapter 3, it was somebody that had a great reputation. Chapter 4, someone with ill repute, someone respected versus somebody who wasn't. One seeks Jesus out. The other stumbles across Jesus. And in the first, Jesus used a spiritual approach, and now Jesus is using an emotional approach. But we're here now in John chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Notice Jesus doesn't want to compete with a rival ministry. He doesn't want to go there. And so he says, let's go to, to, to Galilee, but we're going to go this time through a different route. We're going to go through Samaria. Now, if you can see this little map, to go the way that they went is more mountainous. It's more strenuous. 
And Jews didn't like Samaritans either. We could get into all the reasons. We've probably looked at that before, largely because they like to bring in idol worship with some of their worship of God and which place to worship. And, and one seemed to be cursed by God and the Jews seemed to have the truth. And so they just avoid each other. They hated each other. And so the route that they would most often take was the one to the right. You have a nice river the whole way. It's kind of in the valley. And then you just kind of swerve over and you arrive. Or if that one wasn't the best route, you'd go to the left. But you certainly wouldn't go up to the middle because that's mountainous. I mean, anybody who's driven to Chattanooga or Andrews, North Carolina, you know that you kind of go around the mountains and through the valleys to get to your destination. And there are roads that exist that will take you over the mountains, but are they faster? No. But here in this passage, this small little phrase, he needed to go through Samaria. Doesn't tell us why, at least not yet. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground near Jacob, gave to his son Joseph, and now Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, he too got tired, thus sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was noon. Most people come to draw draw water in the morning, yet this woman is trying to avoid the crowds. She doesn't really want to be seen. Verse 7, And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Now, it's not just that she's Samaritan. It's primarily that. But it's also that she's a woman and you just don't, you don't converse. Sometimes you'll speak with your wife in public, but even that you don't oftentimes do. And so why would he speak to this Samaritan one and a woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, she says. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus, verse 13, answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. I want to ask three questions this morning. The first question is rather simple. Are you thirsty for more? I mean, the world has a lot of things to offer. A lot of things that it claims will quench your thirst. But at the end of the day, does it? Or does it just leave you wanting and longing for more? You know, they say there's a lot of medical conditions that go along with thirst. And if you are without, I came across a story this week of a man who was stuck out in the the desert. His car broke down and he got so desperate as he's hiding underneath his car waiting for somebody to come. He's drinking anything and everything he can literally find. After recycling his own urine for some time, sounds nice, doesn't it? Eventually, as time passed, he became so thirsty 
for something, any kind of liquid to put into his mouth that he goes into the engine and he pulls out radiator fluid and drinks the radiator fluid. This is poison. But he was so thirsty, he wanted to have something in his mouth, the taste of liquid in his mouth, because he was desperate. I believe we have a world that's desperate and that is thirsty, and they're looking for places to draw drinks from that are not helping them. They're poisonous. We're doing this technology seminar downstairs. The more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed and the more anxious. That's what the research says. But everybody's going there because they're thirsty for some kind of human interaction. And we could point to drugs, we could point to alcohol, we could point to a myriad of things because people are thirsty. And Jesus is saying in this verse, I will give you living water and you'll never thirst again. What is this living water? This is the taste of Jesus Christ in your life. When you surrender to Jesus Christ, you don't need anything else. You're content. You may have searched and searched and searched, thinking I can fill this hole with this or this or this or this, but until you put the living water, Jesus Christ, in your life, you're going to be thirsty. Jesus says, I'm the only one that can fulfill that need. And it's not just a want, it's a need. Without water, you will die. And Jesus says, I'm the living water. And it's not that you'll never thirst again in the fact that, well, I just have Jesus once and then I'm done. No, you have Jesus and it's enough. All I need is Jesus. And yes, I want to keep drinking from this living water because it satisfies like nothing else satisfies, period. Yet people keep trying to satisfy it in another way and in another fashion. We keep reading here in our story. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. I mean, how convenient is this? And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, Probably sheepishly, I I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. I've worked really hard to cover up my tracks. And when somebody starts to find out and they start to, to, to make their way down the trail, I leave town. I go someplace else. I skip out. And so I don't know how anybody knows this. I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on the mountain, and the Jews say that, in, say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Basically trying to bring up a controversial issue. Let's, let's avert things. Let's, let's try and avoid what, what seems to be a rather penetrating conversation. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Your worship, you worship what you know. We Know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. 
who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And it's at that moment, verse 28, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city. What does that tell you? She's forgotten her errand. This plate that she was spinning, if you will. She even forgot the simple fact that Jesus, the Savior, is still in want of a drink and thirst. But she wants to now impart the light that she's received. She has had such an aha moment that she can't keep it to herself. And she leaves her water pot to run into the city. Because I have to go. I have to tell. And she says this. This is her message, verse 29. Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to him. I mean, before the story's over, this one singular woman is doing far better as far as mission service than all the disciples combined. In fact, if we fast forward to verse 39, and many of the Samaritans, not just a few, but many of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two whole days. Now, don't forget, there's a prejudice here. But Jesus is not worried about prejudice. In fact, he's going past all of that. He's in their homes. He's eating at their dinner table. He's sleeping in their houses. He stays there for two whole days. Why? Verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. We'll come back to that. Verse 41, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Wow. This is what you call a God-ordained interaction. A divine appointment, if you will. When it would have been a whole lot easier to go around Samaria. And I'm sure, even though it doesn't say in Scripture, I would imagine there was some discussion. Jesus, why are we going to go that way? Can't we just go around? But look at the impact that it has. I like this quote from Desire of Ages, 194. It says, no circumstance of birth or nationality, no condition of life can turn away his, Jesus' love, from the children of men. To every soul, however sinful, Jesus says, if thou hast asked of me, I would have given thee living water. Jesus doesn't, he's no respecter of persons. If you're willing to come to him, he says, I will give you freely. There is no shortage of supply of living water. And I want to give it to you. I desire to give it to you. Well, Jesus doesn't know what I've done. Yes, he does. He knows if you've been married however many times, and even if the person you're living with, he knows all of that, but he still wants to impart to you a living water. 
to cure, maybe for the first time, this thirst that you continually have, this lack of purpose, this lack of meaning, this lack of direction, no joy, no peace, no fulfillment. Why am I here? He says, come to me and let me give you purpose and peace and hope and assurance for your life. Are you thirsty for more? Second of the three questions, will you be a fountain of life? That's what this woman was. She experienced something and she couldn't contain it. Now, I submit to you that if you're having an easy time containing what you have with Jesus, you don't have so much. You have something, but you don't have so much. Because if you truly have something in your life, meaning you have Jesus in your life, you have the living water in your life, if he's transforming your life, you can't keep it to yourself. You will be a fountain of life to others, whether you are really trying or not, it's just going to happen. Well, I don't have an official ministry and the church hasn't voted. It's not going to matter. You are to everybody you come in contact. No nominating committee said, well, I don't think she's ready yet. Well, I think we should. Yeah, let's, let's trust her on it. She just went and she told everybody that she knew and they came and the blessings were abundant. Here's another quote from Desire of Ages. Every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God as a missionary. He who drinks of the living water becomes a fountain of life. The receiver becomes a giver. The grace of Christ in the soul is like a spring in the desert, welling up to refresh all and making those who are ready to perish eager to drink of the water of life. That's what it means. Third part of this story, which is actually more in the middle, but I've chosen to look at it last. I'm going to start in verse 31. It says, in the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, here we have food. Subway, your favorite. I don't know. Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Was he not hungry? He was hungry. Was he still thirsty? He's still thirsty. And the disciples say in verse 33 to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Maybe somebody came by while we were gone. Maybe he's already full. Does somebody want his sandwich? You know, that kind of thing. And Jesus said to him, to them, my food is to do what? The will of him who sent me and to finish what? His work. Apparently, we need to go through Samaria because it's the will of who? The father and it's whose work? The father's work. And he says, this is my food. This is what I feed on. This is what is of most importance to me. No matter what happens in life, no matter how many plates people tell me to try and keep spinning, Jesus says, I don't care. I'm just going to communicate with my father. And if he tells me there's a plate to spin, I'm going to spin that thing till the cows come home. But if he says, you know, that's not something to worry about, I'm not going to worry about it. And so the third question, are you willing to follow God's will? That's the third question. Turn with me, uh, if you will, in John chapter 17. Same book, pretty amazing statement, if you will. It's in John chapter 17, verse 4. And here Jesus is praying. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the portion of his prayer where he's praying for himself. And he makes this remarkable statement. Soon Peter will deny him. Judas will betray him. Romans Romans will crucify him. Jewish leaders will turn their back on him. Soon he will have a crown of thorns forced down upon his head and real nails pierced through his hands. And Jesus says this in verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth, talking to his father. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I've finished the work that you've given me to do? 
I mean, how can this be true? How can Jesus say that he's finished the work? There's still hungry people to be fed. There's still people to heal that are sick. There's still demon-possessed people to deliver. There's still sinners that need forgiveness. There's still broken people that need to be made whole. There's still dead people to be raised, still lost people to save. And Jesus says, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Notice what the text does not say. It doesn't say, I finished everything I have wanted to do. Now, I'm confident that our Savior wanted to heal more people. I'm confident that Jesus wanted to connect with more people and to help in needs with more people because they were urgent, they were pressing. I'm confident he always wanted to do more, but he surrendered to the will of the Father. He says, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work that you have given me to do. Jesus is focused on God's mission. He doesn't have his own mission. And that's where we get tripped up. It seems to be a a good idea. It will be helpful. And so this is something that I need to do. And we go, 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 go. And we work ourselves to death sometimes. And I wonder if God is up there saying, you know, that's nice, but that never was really my mission for you. That's just something you took on. But I never led you to do that. To glorify God is to fulfill the task you were born for. To put it very simply. To fulfill the task that you were born for. Secondly, to accomplish the mission that God has in mind for your life. And thirdly, not to finish the work you want to do, but to finish and complete the assignment that God has given you. And friends, I think if we do that, that will take the stress off. Because I no longer have to keep 35 plates spinning. I just have to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? What is your mission for me? I realize this person's doing that and this person's doing that and you seem to be really blessing over here and over there and I'm becoming very insecure. Lord, it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna look at them. What's your mission for me? Jesus' life purpose was to daily seek the Father's will, one, and to do it, two. We must go through Samaria because it's the Father's will. And that is my food, Jesus says, to do the will of him who sent me. Hebrews 10, 7 says, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. That's why he's come. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is about to pray this prayer. O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That was still the baseline. And that didn't mean that the stresses weren't real, that they weren't there, that he didn't feel them. I mean, we have all these other passages. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became, he knew, he felt the weight. Or this other verse, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was cursed for you and for me. But even in those moments, even in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, Not as I will, but as you will. Your mission's the one that's important. Your way is the only way. And he couldn't see past the portals of the tomb, we're told. He thought this was going to be forever separation. If there's any other way, but I submit, I surrender to your plan. My will is to do the will of my Father. Desire of Ages 208, it says, The Son of God was surrendered to the Father's will and depended upon his power. So utterly was Christ emptied of self 
that he made no plans for himself. He accepted God's plans for him. And day by day, the father unfolded his plans. So should we depend upon God that our lives may be the simple outworkings of his will. Now, I've heard some people's interpretation of this to mean, I don't make any plans. I mean, zero. Pastor, can I meet with you tomorrow? Don't have any plans. Can we go to this thing? Nope, I don't make plans. Well, when can we know? I don't know. I don't think that's what this is saying. What I think this is saying is, because that would be irresponsible, go ahead, make your plans, and, and plan to follow through the best that you understand, and try to follow me in that. But even the day of, you say, Lord, I surrender my calendar to you. This is what I think you want me to do today, but maybe you have something else in mind. And if so, I submit to that. Driving to work, flat tire. Lord, it looks like you have a different plan for my day than I had. Show me what it is. I submit to it. Is there somebody here I need to pay attention to as opposed to just trying to get more stuff done on my phone? I mean, the baseline in everything we do. What is God's will? That's the question we ask over and over, isn't it? Or shouldn't it be? What is God's will in my practice or in my business? Lord, what's your will? Lord, what's your will in my relationship with my staff and my coworkers, with those around me, those in the school system, my fellow colleagues or students? God, what's your will? What's your will in how I spend my time? What's your will in how I spend my money? What's your will in how I relate to my spouse and to my children? What's your will in my entertainment practices? How about my health practices? In all of these questions, we say, Lord, what's your will? What is your mission for me? What do you want me to do? Because to me, it would be a huge shame, a huge travesty to have a business that succeeded beyond anybody's wildest expectations. But at the end of the day, God's mission, his purpose for you and your life, you didn't accomplish it. What a shame it would be to store up all this stuff, to have the best staff, the most successful whatever, and to have all the toys, but you have failed in the mission God has for you. What a shame that would be. So back to these three questions. Are you thirsty for more? Secondly, will you be a fountain of life? And thirdly, are you willing to follow God's will for your life, God's mission and God's purpose. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.